Morning, everyone. Hi, my name's Ian. I'm one of the leaders here at North Gathering. Um, and it's my pleasure to continue the series, the preaching series that we're going through in at, at the moment. Uh, last week, if you were here, Matt kicked the series off looking at the book of Romans. Uh, and so we're going to be continuing that this morning. Matt used some diagrams last week about the chasm that exists between humanity and God um, and how this chasm separates us from him and the Bible calls that sin. It's all the wrong things we've thought and done and said. Um, And Paul describes in the first few chapters of Romans about this topic. So it's my pleasure to be able to speak to you this morning um, about the fallenness of mankind, how bad we all are, our sin, and uh, we're going to spend the whole morning looking at that. So isn't that great? I can see you're really looking forward to it already. So am I. So um, the reason we're doing this is the book of Romans is a long description of the good news of Jesus, the gospel that Matt described last week was like a herald, an evangeloi. It's the good news, and it's broken down into various sections, and in the first three chapters of Romans, Paul talks at length about our need for God's salvation which is the result of our sin. And so that is what we're going to be looking at this morning. I realize it could be a bit morbid, um, but it's actually a very important topic. If I can just do something up the front. There you go, that's going to work. Okay, I thought I'd bring a prop to help me this morning. So Paul, the reason that Paul talks about the sin and humanity's need for salvation in this first few chapters of Romans, one of his primary concerns was actually the church in Rome, the letter that he was writing to. And the church there, as Matt described last week, was made up of people who were from a Jewish background and people who were not from a Jewish background. And there were some disagreements between them. And he wanted to address that specifically by talking about the fact that actually everyone is in need of forgiveness, everyone is is fallen, and that there's a level playing field between Jews and Gentiles, those that aren't Jewish. And we need to recognize that as well, obviously. And the way that I thought that we we could help to understand this, this this morning is, if you like, this candle represents the good news of Jesus and the gospel. Um, but the trouble is, I guess, with the lights on, um, and, and everything in this room, you know, it, it's maybe visible, but if someone walked into this room, they wouldn't immediately see this candle. And if this candle represents the good news of Jesus, it's not necessarily automatically something that people would see or grasp or look at. I've got some uh, volunteers now. If we could turn the lights off in here, that'd be great. Brilliant, thank you. So, Now, as the room is darkened, actually, the candle stands out all the more brightly. When someone walks in this room now, probably one of the first first things they'll look at is this candle. And what Paul is doing in these first few chapters of Romans is, if you like, turning the lights off and recognizing the darkness that exists as the backdrop to which the gospel of Jesus actually is now presented. And so it's a helpful thing for us to look at this morning. It's not a pleasant topic. We don't like looking at the things that we've done wrong. We don't like thinking about how broken we are, how fallen, how selfish, how proud we are. 
But actually, that's the context within which the light of Jesus and the gospel comes in. And so actually, I'm hoping that this is going to be a really helpful thing as a contrast between the darkness that pervades humanity and the light of the gospel of Jesus. Is that okay? Let me put this on the stage. Okay, if we can have the lights back up, that'd be great. Isaiah 9 verse 2 says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Hence the candle. Okay. So the theologian John Stott said, Nothing keeps people away from Christ more than their inability to see their need of him or their unwillingness to admit it. Admit it. And so my hope for this morning is that we will hold a mirror up to ourselves, if you like, and recognize afresh our need of God and his salvation. It's an important topic. It's fundamental, actually, to humanity. It's something that we can't just kind of gloss over or be superficial about. And so it's right that we spend a morning looking at this. Paul, as he wrote Romans, knew that this was an important subject to grapple with. He spent three whole chapters talking about it, so he obviously felt it was important. But it will actually make us wiser looking at these things, as unpleasant as it might be. But it also gives us a fuller understanding of all that God has done in Jesus. And that will lead to thanksgiving and praise all the more as we recognize just what it is he's done for us. Okay. So let's start looking at the uh, verses in Romans. So we're going to start in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Um, the, the verses are going to come up on the screen behind us. And what I wanted to do for the first couple of verses is to use the verses in this chapter to act like a conversation with Paul, to help us understand what he's saying and why he's saying it in these first few verses. Okay, So where there's a cue, that's a question, for us to ask Paul, why is he saying this? Or to help us to link some of these verses, okay? So in 16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Should we all say the questions together? So let's say the question. Why not, Paul? Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Altogether, sounds great. But how is that so, Paul? For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. That is God's way of giving us right standing before him. That's what the book of Romans calls righteousness. Question? Okay. But why is this necessary, Paul? Because the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, which comes on to the theme of today's talk so the reason why it's necessary, the gospel is necessary because of God's wrath that is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness that is described here. Okay, so that's the reason that Paul starts the first few chapters talking about that because this is the reason why each of us needs the gospel of Jesus and his salvation. 
So what is this wickedness that Paul describes? Well, later on uh, in chapter 1, he talks and describes the situation that the Roman church probably finds themselves and the kind of culture and society that they would be uh, worshipping and living within. And it's not a very nice place. There's a lot of uh, evil going on. There's a lot of wrong things. There's a lot of bad relating between people. And so he describes it in these verses, 29. So let's ask him this question, shall we, together? What is this wickedness, Paul? They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. It's not a great list, is it? The message version of the Bible, which sometimes kind of puts a fresh slant on these things, says that there's rampant evil, grabbing and grasping, vicious backstabbing, They made life hell on earth with their envy, wanton killing, bickering and cheating. Look at them, mean-spirited, venomous, forked-tongued God-bashers. They keep inventing new ways of wrecking lives. They ditch their parents when they get in the way. Stupid, slimy, cruel and cold-blooded. And it's not as if they don't know better. They know perfectly well they're spitting in God's face. And they don't care. Worse... They hand out prizes to those who do the worst things best. And so Paul in these verses describes God's response to this situation. And what Paul describes is God's wrath. Is it wrath? 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 Probably depends where you come from. Wrath. Let's say wrath. What is this wrath? Well, this wrath is God's angry displeasure at sin. That's what God's wrath is. Revelation chapter 16 says, O holy one, who is and who was? You brought these judgments. It is what they deserve. And so God's wrath describes and speaks about God's reaction to sin, to waywardness, to rebellion, to fallenness in humanity. It describes a sense of retribution, a punishment inflicted on someone for the things that they've done wrong or a criminal act. And it's something we feel a bit uncomfortable about, isn't it? You know, this isn't a topic that rests easy with us, particularly in our culture at the moment. It's something to to judge somebody else is something that isn't encouraged or applauded, is it? And I feel very uncomfortable preaching on this topic. But it is an aspect of God's character that the Bible talks a lot about, and we can't just skirt round the verses that talk about it. Actually, it's important that we reflect on what it is. And there is something inside all of us that craves and wants justice, isn't there? You know, if you look at the news on the TV at night and see all the terrible things that go on around the world, the genocide, the murder, you know, the awful things people are doing to vulnerable people to children that our reaction is that's not right there should be a response to those things that person shouldn't just get away with doing that that's wrong there should be some comeuppance there should be some 
punishment for that person or those people. And we would probably all have that reaction. But then there are the kind of minor misdemeanors, the little things we do to one another, the things that we know maybe aren't the best, but they're not too serious, the minor misdemeanors. And we kind of tend to gloss over those things and say, well, actually, they're not too bad. God doesn't mind those things. But if we start down that road, then where do we put the line at which actually those things are serious that need punishment, but actually these things aren't serious. They don't need any response. And it's hard to put that line somewhere, isn't there? And everyone will put that line differently, and it creates uncertainty. But actually God says that actually all of that is beyond the line. Actually, from the smallest misdemeanor, the, the, the loose word that is spoken, the pencil that you steal from somebody else, the very little things that we might do, actually, God has a response to those things. And it's his angry displeasure towards sin. You see, actually... His wrath and his response to sin is a central part of his character. It is actually a fundamental part of who he is. It's not just something that has to happen that he's kind of grudgingly having to exercise. Actually, it's a core part of who he is and his quality as God. You see, if he didn't respond to sin in this way, he would be somehow a sort of sentimental God, a kind of soppy God that just sort of let things go. And I know as a parent, if I kind of let things go, then actually I sort of create a problem for myself. We sometimes, um, we we try and encourage our kids to watch age-appropriate movies in our house. And uh, so we tend to follow the kind of uh, the the, uh, recommendations in terms of the, you know, 12 certificate, 15 certificate and things. And uh, generally that works well, but when they're at friends' houses or other people's houses, obviously we have less control over that and it's difficult. And once we allow it once, then our kids, being kids, and a natural response is, well, you let me do it that time, why won't you let me do it this time as well? And you're down a slippery slope and it's very difficult. If God allows any kind of wrongdoing to go unpunished, then actually he just becomes as I say, a little bit sort of sentimental and it's harder for him to actually have the moral high ground as the judge of all things because he's kind of letting this thing go and letting that thing go and then actually where do we stand with him? We don't know where we are. And even the future that we're looking forward to, the new heavens and the new earth, which is apparently going to be a perfect place where no one does any wrong to one another. It's going to be wonderful Similar to how we were first created. We were created perfectly, the Bible says. We weren't created to do these wrong things. And so what we're looking forward to is perfection again, where there'll be a perfect society and community existing, where there won't be any wrongdoing. The Bible says there won't be any sin or hardship or tears or pain. It'll be a perfect place. But if God's plumb line and his judgment was somehow a bit flaky in some areas and he was being a bit letting this thing go and letting that thing go, then the future we're looking forward to would also be a bit like that. I'm not sure that sounds such a great place. If he allows things to go unchecked here and there, then where does that lead to? 
And so God must have a judgment and a response to all things that are wrong. If you like, God's wrath is his love in action against sin. Actually, his response to sin is part of his love. It's a quality of his love that he exercised because he knows how damaging sin is. He knows how destructive it is. He knows how it poisons relationships and gets in the way. He knows how it brings people down and it causes suffering. And he doesn't want that for his people. He loves us. He loves each one of us. And so he doesn't want this to occur between people. It pains him. And so he responds out of love. And that is his judgment and his wrath. Because he sees the damage it does. The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe is, uh, is an oft-quoted uh, story uh, to describe who God is. And uh, Aslan the, the, is the lion, the main character, and he's a, a sort of an, an analogy um, or an allegory. I never know which it is. Is it an allegory? For Jesus. So Aslan, the character, is, is a, a sort of picture of Jesus. And a conversation that some of the characters in the story have, some of the children with the beavers, because uh, the beavers talk in the story, obviously, uh, they say, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He's the king. And that is a good description of how God is in his love. Yes, he's a warm and loving God, compassionate, gracious, patient, kind, loving. But in that sense, he's not safe. He will respond to things. His wrath, his wrath will respond. His angry displeasure at sin will still be there. So how can we describe God's wrath? How does Paul in these verses describe the wrath of God? Well, he gives an insight into the situation in Rome that he's speaking into, that he's writing to. And whereas wrath can often be thought about in terms of punishment, you know, fire falling down on people and, you know, active judgment, actually what Paul describes in the first chapter, in some ways, it's a lot more chilling than that. What Paul describes is not activity of God's in this wrath and this displeasure, but it's rather an inactivity. It's something that God doesn't do. It's where God actually hands over people who are so bent on doing their own thing and going their own way, actually he gives them over to those things. He lets them go ahead in such damaging and destructive ways. And he emphasizes the point in the chapter three times by using the same phrase. He says that God gives them over to things. In verse 24, God gives them over to lusts of their hearts. In verse 26, God gives them over to dishonorable passions. And in verse 28, God gives them over to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And it's almost like God abandons people to their own self-centeredness and pride and sinful appetites. 
this is actually a terrible, awful thing that God should do. The loving, kind God who loves people, who is gracious to everyone. The, the, the theologians talk about common grace, the air we breathe, the planet that we live on that sustains us, the sense of community and togetherness we have, and family and friends. All those things are his grace to us, the things that he gives to everybody, the way that sometimes he pricks people's consciences, where he gives good laws in society for us to live by so that things don't completely fall apart. He might provide good leaders to exercise justice and goodness in societies. And those are all his common goodness to us, for everybody. I wonder if I could have some volunteers. I need uh, a volunteer to represent God, and I need a couple of people to represent people who are probably willing to fall on the floor, if that's okay. So if you're in, in either of those categories, would you mind just coming up? Maybe three, two, three of you? Well done, Mark. Right, you're first. Well done, Mark. You can be God. So if you just kind of stand there. Okay, Toby, thank you. You can come along. If you go over this side. Thanks, Tom. If you go over this side. A bit further, a bit further. Right, so... If you like, there's a kind of spiritual tug of war going on that is described in these verses, okay? So what I want you to do is imagine that there's a rope, like a tug of war. So if you can pretend to hold a rope, God is on this side. Obviously, he doesn't move. He's pretty strong. He's not going to get pulled over. But there's a rope between him and these people that are represented in the verses here that it talks about. These, these people that want to go their own way, so they're pulling on the rope. They're pulling on the rope. They want to do their own thing. They want to get into all this fun stuff over here. They want to indulge themselves. They want to um, appease their appetites. They've got all this great stuff that they want to get into. And yet there is this kind of common grace that actually God holds the tension on the rope so that although they're not near him, they're not in relationship with him, they're not close to him, actually he's been gracious to them in, in how he is um, doing all these things that we've talked about, the kind of common grace things, yeah? But there comes a point that Paul describes in this story, in, in, in these verses, where they are pulling, keep pulling, don't stop, where they're pulling and pulling and pulling on God, uh, on God. And what does God do? He lets go of the rope. Very well acted. Okay, thanks. You can take your seats again. But, but what an awful thing, actually to have happened to those people. And God's reaction is that he would be weeping for that situation. He would be so sad about that, that they're wanting to pull away and pull away and pull away. But he knows what lies beyond for them. He knows the damage that that causes. He knows the harm that that will do to them. And yet, at a point, he does decide to give them over to those things as part of his wrath and his response to sin. And that's a terrible thing to have happened. And that's what Paul describes as what has happened to these people in the culture at the time, that he's given them over to these things. He's given them over to those things. And ultimately, he said, if that's what you want, then you can do it, knowing the damage and the harm that that will do. We wouldn't want that on any community or society, would we? For God to do that, for God to let go of the rope in that way and leave them to those things. 
And I believe that we have a responsibility as a church to pray for our communities and to pray for our culture and society and ask God that he doesn't let go of the rope in that way. God, would you keep that tension on the rope? Would you keep them somehow away from those things that are going to be so damaging? So, in the rest of the chapters that we're going to look at this morning, very quickly, Paul describes four types of sin or unrighteousness, four ways in which humanity goes about moving away from him and being separated from him. The first is the description of the society that we've just talked about and we read out in those verses, the kind of uh, the, the society that would have been um, around at Rome at the time. Uh, and we've looked at this already. And in some ways it's the most obvious type of, of unrighteousness, not right standing. In verse 22, Paul says, Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. They thought that they were informed and educated, and yet the way they acted was very foolish. So that's the first type. The second type that Paul describes is in chapter 2 in the first 16 verses. And these are moralizers. These are people who don't live up to their own high standards. In verse 1 and 2 of chapter 2, it says, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? So Paul is describing another type of person, a, a hypocrite that we, we would call, wouldn't we? They set themselves up almost as judge over other people. They think they know better. They think that others aren't living up to their high standards. They look down on others and judge them. But actually, they're no better themselves. And God knows their hearts. And it's very easy for us to be like that, isn't it? It's a very natural, unfortunately, way that we have of being. That it's so quick for us to judge and look down on others and think that they don't meet our high standards. I'm a cyclist. I, I cycle to work uh, every day. And um, this is me on a bike. When, uh, when I'm cycling along, I tend to judge car drivers pretty harshly when they don't think about where I am on the road and when they pull in front of me or dozy pedestrians on Headingley High Street that just walk out in front of me without thinking I might be there. And in my heart, I'm judging them. But then I get behind a wheel of a car and I know that I'm not considerate of, bike, of cyclists the whole time. I know that I don't always think about who's on my left when I'm turning left and that kind of thing. And but it's so easy for us, isn't it, to be in one situation where we're judging other people and yet when we find ourselves in that situation, then we don't always live up to the same standards, do we? It may not be judging other people's driving. It may be how people use their leisure time and what they choose to do with it. It may be picking up on what other people say and, and the, the, the words that they use or phrases. It may be people at work and your colleagues and how they work compared to how you work. It may be how you feel about your boss at work and your thoughts about them and, and how they operate. It's so easy for us to slip into this, isn't it? 
So that's the second one, the kind of moralizers that Paul talks about. The third one is um, the Jews in the church that, that at the time who are self-confident in their own kind of status, their sort of religious status, if you like, that because they're Jews, they're God's chosen people, and so they're better than everyone else. And therefore, their religious observance is what makes them have a right standing before God. In verse 28 of chapter 2, Paul says, A person is not a Jew who is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. So circumcision is where young men would have their foreskin removed as an outward sign that they were dedicated to God. And so Paul is saying it's not just about outward things like that. He says in verse 29, No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. So these people are observing these religious rituals as a way of feeling that they're in right standing before God. But actually, Paul says, no, that, that isn't the case. It's actually the state of your heart that matters. And again, that's the same for us, isn't it? We would, as churchgoers, if you're here and you regularly come to church then we would easily get in the habit of being religious and thinking that that somehow makes us acceptable to God and that puts us in a right standing before him. And even in a sort of more informal church like this where we don't have pews and we don't have men in dresses up the front who are, you know, taking services and, you know, all those things. It's easy for us, I think, sometimes as a, as a more informal church to think, well, they're more religious, those types of churches but I think we can fall into the same trap as well. Sometimes we can do things in a very kind of formulaic way. that We do things the same every time. If we raise our hands in worship, that's kind of an outward sign that we're a Christian and we love God. Even if our hearts may not be moved at all, we may want to, uh, you know, uh, we may know the Bible really well or pray or whatever. But those things in themselves don't make us acceptable to God, do they? It's the state of our hearts and we need to watch being religious in a church like this just as much as any other church. So the first three categories, the first category was the kind of society that Paul observed and, and the sort of moral degradation at the time in Rome. The second one was the kind of moralizers who were hypocrites. And the third one were the people who were religious and thought that that was a way of being acceptable before God. And the fourth group that Paul describes is actually all of humanity. So if, if you're not included in the first three, then maybe we're probably included in this kind of catch-all group at the end. The whole of humanity actually are sinful and actually are under God's response of his holy, angry displeasure. In chapter 3, verse 9, it says, What shall we conclude then after we've given these examples of people who are in a, in, a, in a sort of degraded society, people who are hypocrites, people who are, who are religious, what should we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all, Paul says, for we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. There's a level playing field now, and he's speaking directly into the church in Rome with these two groups, the Jews and the non-Jews. And he's saying, no, neither of you are better than the other. Neither of you can be on your high horse or claim that you're the righteous. Actually, there's a level playing field for all of us and our standing before God. 
as it goes on to say, and it quotes some Old Testament verses, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And we're all in that position. That actually the living playing field is that we're all in that position before God. And yet there is a light that has come into the world against this dark backdrop, against the recognition of how rebellious, independent, proud, going their own way, we all are as people. Actually, Paul, in the rest of the letter to the Romans, goes on to describe actually the wonderful light that has come into the world and how brilliant it is and amazing it is against this dark backdrop and how this light will actually lead us all out of darkness through faith in his son Jesus. In closing, we're just going to, uh, just want to remind us about some verses that Jesus said in Mark chapter 2. He said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And actually, part of our journey of faith is recognizing how spiritually sick we are as individuals and as, as humanity and that is what I believe Paul is doing in these first few chapters is actually taking a mirror up to ourselves and saying you need to realize actually how sick you are and how in need you are of a healer and Jesus says I am that healer I am the one who can come to you and cure you of this terminal sickness of sin and it's him that does it for each one of us which is an amazing thing and something that I'm so grateful for, I'm so thankful for. And as we look at these things which aren't easy to look at and our own darkness and our own sin and pride and rebellion, actually the reason it's good to look at those things because in contrast it makes us all the more thankful, all the more grateful for actually what Jesus has done. That he just didn't leave us like that. But he forgives us and he promises that those things won't be held against us in judgment any longer. And in the weeks going forward, we're going to look to understand more of what that means. For actually these things no longer to stand against us. That actually in the judgment, finally, these things are not held against us any longer because of what he has done and our faith in him.